Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike Cullidge and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss an issue of the day. In this episode, Mike and Sean talk with Margaret Eaton, National CEO for the Canadian Mental Health Association, about the pandemic's impact on the mental health of Canadians. Although public opinion has shifted, stigma has been reduced, and open dialogue about mental health issues has become more common, Canadians rank mental health as the second biggest health problem in the country after COVID. While government investment in mental health supports have increased since the pandemic began, there are gaps that will need to be addressed now and in the post-pandemic world to ensure Canadians have access to free mental health programs. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this episode of Educate the Conjecture. Sean, my friend, how are you today? I'm well, Mike. It's a beautiful sunny day, so I'm, my spirits are high. And you and you just got back from vacation, which is uh... I did, and I, I did not die on the ski hill. Uh, it's okay. been uh, it's been about two decades since I skied, but I was out in Banff and uh, was able to tackle sunshine and uh, and Lake Louise without breaking a bone. So I'm, I'm quite uh, pleased with myself. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, you missed. Uh, I don't know when you came back, but you missed some funky Ontario spring weather. Um, I think it was a high at 12 and incredibly windy on the weekend and today's like i'm just outside of ottawa as you know it's like going to be yeah. five degrees and sunny which is very odd for the middle of december but um uh, as you know we've talked about climate change a couple times so maybe we're feeling it right now well i felt it when we were landing during the windstorm at pearson okay <laughs> good so i won't i won't surprise anybody because i know you're going to introduce our guest um but do you want to start off with your uh numbers that have caught your eye or fast sure sure week? well uh, this will be the last one that we record before the uh, the holidays so it, it's a uh, a bit of a holiday theme but also uh, i think appropriate given who our, our guest is who i'll introduce momentarily 74 percent of canadians say that their mental health needs a normal holiday season this year three quarters of canadians say they need a normal season for their mental health uh unfortunately the companion stat to that is that only 44% believe that this holiday season will feel normal. Uh, so, you know, how we juxtapose that those, that expectation versus, you know, what, what the hope is or reality is, uh, maybe we can talk with our guest about that. But uh, that was the, the stat that I found uh, well, intriguing that's, that's, for today. That's excellent. And, and, and without planning it, well, sort of without planning it, um, and in keeping with, their, with our theme, I'm going to talk about mental health, but from a global perspective, from some of the, the global work we've done. Um, in, in 2018, um, mental health ranked as the third biggest health problem in a, in a study we did on health issues people were facing around the world, and I think it was 28 countries, uh, just behind cancer and obesity. What's interesting is over the last two years, it's held fairly steady. Fast forward to 2021, and not only has it held uh, up, up while others have been pushed back down by the coronavirus, but it's held steady against the coronavirus. Um, and it's actually increased by five points. So, so more people feeling that today. And in a study that we're about to put out uh, early in the new year, um, eight in 10 say globally that their their mental and physical health are on are of equal importance right now. And, uh, and I know this because I'm writing a paper uh, on it for some of our global work. And the interesting thing is, as, as we're looking through the paper as well, we're at this 
space where eight and 10 feel they're equal importance. And then the 25 countries or 28 countries, 50%. So even at the, the lowest level, it's half who say, no, that's an equal. Yet when you line that up with uh, uh, public health expenditures, uh, it's not even close. Uh, in terms of the how much money from the from governments and institutions it's put into mental health, so that's a huge challenge I think around the world. I think the the, the best part about this podcast for me, Mike, is that we get to speak with remarkable people, and our guest today is a remarkable person. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Margaret Eaton uh, to the podcast, Educated Conjecture. Uh, Margaret is currently the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association. You know, perhaps not surprising given some of the stats that we were, were talking about, um, but she's also had a remarkable career. She was formerly uh, executive director of the Toronto Region Immigrant Employment Council, which championed solutions to help new immigrants transition into the workforce. Uh, she was formerly president of ABC Life Literacy Canada, which helps adults to improve their skills uh, over the course of their life. And that's where I first met uh, Margaret. She's also uh, worked in some other positions that are sort of dear to me, uh, arts organizations such as the Stratford Festival, Tuffle Musique, uh, the Royal Conservatory of Music. Uh, for those efforts in um, uh, in the arts and literacy, she was awarded the Diamond Jubilee Medal uh, nine years ago and uh, is uh, educated. Uh, she's an MBA from the Schulich School of Business. So as I said, a remarkable person. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Sean and Mike. Great to be here. The uh, notable uh, thing about your tenure at, at the association is that you started, what, two months before the pandemic was declared? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what was exactly. that like? Well, you know, as you described, I've had this really varied career, and I love this idea of jumping into a new sector. And so I thought, well, I'll tried mental health because I, I'm a person of, with lived experience. I suffer from anxiety and depression. I have family members who have had major mental illness and addiction issues. And I thought, it's time. It is time that mental health really took center stage. I will join the Canadian Mental Health Association. And then two months in, we were in lockdown. And um, uh, the phone was ringing from the media and government saying, how are Canadians feeling? Um, and so we found our issue of mental health smack in the front pages of the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star. And it was on everybody's lips. And so that it was a very exciting time to actually be part of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, we're the largest community mental health association in the country. We have uh, 80 locations across Canada. We serve 1.5 million people every year. And so it was very exciting to be at that uh, kind of the bleeding edge of, of one of the main issues of COVID-19. That's quite quite a uh, <laughs> quite an experience and uh, ama amazing timing, um, as we as we said before when before we started the podcast. It's great to talk to people so so accomplished. Um, how has your how has your previous work impacted sort of coming into this? I mean, because two months in, you would have had to draw on everything else. You you're not you're not up to speed yet. Well, I mean, no. you can be very quick up to speed, but that size of that organization, you're just in the learning curve and thrust into the thrust into the spotlight. How did your previous work help you? you know, sort of guide that initial days? Well, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. You know, one of the things I appreciated about being at ABC Life Literacy Canada is it talks about how important learning is all the time at whatever stage of life you're at. 
Um, and that's always what draws me to new roles is I'm really curious. And um, as I mentioned, that lived experience is one of the things that really helped me. Um, plus that idea of just digging deep into what was going on. So we very quickly commissioned some research um, with UBC to look at what's the impact of COVID. Um, and so having that knowledge at our fingertips of what was actually going on on the ground and then checking in with our local CMHAs to find out what's going on in Kelowna, what's going on in Windsor, what's happening in St. John's. That was invaluable for really getting up to speed and understanding so that I could then convey to the media and government what was actually happening out there. I expect your anecdotal evidence was way ahead of your data uh, in terms of people saying there's a lot of a, a lot of action happening, a lot coming on. So. Yeah, you're quite right. So what we were hearing across the country was our phones are ringing off the hook. Um, people were in lockdown, so suddenly we're having to switch to virtual service. Um, but then we were hearing, you know, stories about people very concerned about the people with chronic mental illness that they would have served and worried about just getting them food. And so people were making sandwiches and putting them out on the doorstep and getting in touch, calling our clients wow. to say, please come and, and pick up some food. It was a really difficult time at the very beginning. And so, Margaret, coming into your, your role with the association, you probably had some ideas and some plans and a bit of a strategy set. And then the pandemic hit. Did you have to call an audible or were, were there things that you wanted to do just intensified and, and accelerated as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one of the first things I would have done was go, go out and meet people. You know, I sit in the national office and we have uh, 11 divisions in, you know, 10 provinces in the Yukon Territory. I would have been hitting the road and talking to people. And instead, um, I was very internally focused at the beginning with my own staff to try to make sure everybody was OK. And then we started having twice a week Zoom meetings with the provinces and the Yukon Territory just to check in with people across the country, find out what was going on, and just make sure everybody felt supported. So, um, you know, in addition to worrying about the mental health of the country, we were also worried about the mental health of our own staff and uh, of the many people across the country that were working around the clock to try to make sure that there was mental health service for people. And you, and you wouldn't have had that advantage. I know when we went, went to Zoom only, you know, um, people who had relationships, you know, Sean and I'd known each other for years. Yeah. So suddenly moving to this <laughs> two dimensional screen and looking at each other wasn't as, as big a rat stretch. But for you coming in, it would have been my your first introductions to everybody yeah. on the team was through through this yeah. screen and uh, would have been quite a challenge. Huh. Um, it's very true. Yeah. Uh, what do you what do you think that the, the <laughs> this is a really tough question and probably unfair. What's the biggest impact of the pandemic being? Um, is sort of uh, in general on Canadians from a mental health perspective? You know, it, in some ways, um, I think that um, because people have experienced their own mental health issues, so we know that 40 to 50 percent of Canadians have said that their mental health was worsened during the pandemic. And then if you look at um, people with a disability or people with a pre-existing mental health condition, those numbers go up to 60 percent. Similarly, the LGBTQ community, racialized people, also 60 to 70 percent of those groups felt that their mental health had worsened. Um, we know that suicidal ideation is, is up. 
And parents were really, really hard hit, with many of them being concerned about just putting food on the table. So the downside of all of that is we have seen increases in opioid use and deaths from opioid um, use and um, the poison drug supply. Um, uses of alcohol and cannabis are way up. Um, but what I think it has done overall is um, we've all had an experience of anxiety and stress. And I think people's empathy for others that are struggling with mental health challenges has actually increased. And so from a policy perspective, it's meant that there's been more investment in mental health. There's more conversation about mental health. And so while we worry very much about people's anxiety, depression, substance use, uh, there seems to be a response to it from the provinces and from the federal government that has been in many ways outstanding. We've seen budgets expand in ways that we've never seen before. Mm. And so I think, you know, they always say policy and investment follows pub the public. It's the public that drives these things. And so public understanding of mental health and I think a, reduce, a reduction in stigma has, you know, never been greater. I know we in some of our tracking, we saw sort of that slow, steady reduction in stigma prior to the pandemic. And I, and I think you're right. If there's a bright side to it, yeah. it's a, for the long term, it, it's out and we'll have these conversations ongoing and, and hopefully it gets better and better. You know, I was I was thinking, Margaret, and, and you've, you've sort of addressed it in your in your previous response. But I was I was wondering whether you believe that we're we're actually making progress uh, over the course of the pandemic, you know, obviously more people experiencing mental health concerns or those who already were, um, uh, those those concerns are heightened at the same time. So that, I don't know if it's a numerator or the denominator, but the other one, is the other one keeping up? You know, are we closing the gap between where we are now and where we need to be? Is that growing or is it is it sort of that gap being being consistent over the course of the pandemic because there's more supports maybe but also the, the there's more people experiencing the, the mental health concerns yeah well the gap is huge as as you point out um and in your opening remarks mike you talked about that how people feel that their mental and physical health is equal in their value but there isn't that investment so Prior to the pandemic, there were 1.6 million Canadians who would say that they had an untreated mental health issue. So, and we know that we're not investing as much in mental health as other countries, where um, in the United Kingdom is something like 10 or 11% of their health budget and ours is only, you know, 7% of our health budget. Um, so we have seen some investments at the federal government level. There's been some COVID money. It's short term. There's been $100 million that's been set aside, particularly for vulnerable populations who've been impacted by COVID. Um, but the more um, long lasting effect might be this new mental health transfer that the Liberals promised in their platform, which is $4.5 billion over five years. And we have a new, well, for the only time, we've never had a minister of mental health and yeah. substance use. So that seems like a huge um, nod to the importance of mental health. The throne speech mentioned mental health three times. So I feel like this federal government really gets it. Um, but we even saw some of the conservative governments. Um, Ontario has increased their spending. And then we had in Nova Scotia uh, 
a government come in come in saying that they wanted to bring in for the first time ever universal mental health care and that's been one of our big goals over this pandemic is to get people to realize it isn't just that we need some funding right now to deal with these issues we need long-term investment in people's mental health the same kind of investment they have in the united kingdom or the european union so you said 1.6 million is that right so is yeah. that is that that sort of a key number that you watch over time and because that that's i guess that describes the gap doesn't it it does. It's it's a proxy for the gap. Yeah, yeah. And that number, of course, would be much higher now as people are wrestling with the pandemic. And one of our concerns, too, is that this elevated level of mental health concern will carry on that even though we may be getting back to work, although who knows if we're getting back to yeah. work um, in physical proximity to each other, um, we know that the mental health impact will be longer. So um, once the sort of physical impacts have been mitigated, we'll see a longer term impact. And that was true after SARS for not in Canada so much, but in other countries that experienced SARS um, after natural pandemics, it can take up to two years for people to actually get back to a more normal state of mental health. So we're in a, we should be in it for the long haul. Yeah, and and I think from our data, we also see, you know, climate change uh, mm -hmm. is you know is is almost met with dread and angst and concern. And so so when you even when you see a neutral story around climate change, we know young people tend to react with words like "I'm concerned," "It worries me," "It frustrates me." So that's a a, a long term sort of building angst. And and I think you're right. You know, the whole transition, you know. People with kids out of school, you know, looking at their looking at their kids on screen time, a whole range of things has has made people think very differently about it, um, which I which I I think will cause you as an organization problems in the long run, but will also make um, if public opinion is going to drive some of this, public opinion hold as a as a required uh, focus. Um, any advice for? I, I, normally, we talk about institutions and governments, but for, for individuals, um, because I, I suspect that some people are listening to this and they're going, that's great. Governments are investing. And, um, but is there something that, you know, there's two or three things that if you're dealing with this or you're, or you know, someone who is that this is a, a, a good first step, even if you're a little bit shy about where to go next and what to do. Yeah, well, I think a lot of us are feeling a level of anxiety, and um, and in some cases that can flip into depression. Um, and so, some of the signs, if you're concerned about your mental health, um, if you're finding it hard to do regular activities, if getting out of bed is difficult, or if your sleep has changed, or your eating or your substance use has changed, um, or you're not able to cope in relationships with others or support the people around you, those might be signs and symptoms that you might need some extra help. So we really encourage people to um, think about uh, taking a virtual program. We have our national bounce back program, which is for mild and moderate anxiety and depression. And that might be something that you could take a look at. It's based on cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is the, the number one best tested researched approach to dealing with anxiety. So uh, there are tools out there. You can visit our website at cmha.ca. But, you know, I just think uh, if you don't feel like yourself, 
reach out and get some help, get some support, uh, either from a psychotherapist or a counselor or a program. Um, if it's not quite at that level for you, then the other uh, good things to do are reach out to a friend, make sure you're maintaining social connection and not isolating yourself, and get some physical exercise. Get outside if you can and get some vitamin D. Where do we as a as a as a society lag when it comes to mental health? I mean, if you had three priority areas or wishes that we could address right away, what would those be? Are they an individual level? Is it policy? Is it accessibility? Yes. Well, you know, my big dream is this universal mental health care where we would actually have funding so that, I mean, just like if you broke your arm, you'd go to an emergency room or you go to your doctor and you'd get something. There should be something like that for what is the kind of common cold of mental health. So um, depression and anxiety would be the, the most important thing to address. Depression is probably at an epidemic level right now. Um, and so in the United Kingdom, for example, any healthcare uh, location that you go to, you're offered uh, the opportunity to have some cognitive behavioral therapy. So in-person coaching, virtual. So we've got a small program or bounce back program, but expanding that so everybody could have uh, some kind of option for a community mental health approach would be great. The other thing would be addressing opioid use and substance use. Um, and right now, some people have been almost bankrupted by trying to participate in what are uh, for-profit um, recovery programs. It can be very, very expensive and hard to find treatment for, for opioid use and um, substance use. So having free, uh, easily accessible programs, and then in concert with that, safe supply. Uh, this is a huge issue that they're grappling with in British Columbia right now, that our supply has been poisoned. Um, and so we need to be able to guarantee those people who are struggling with opioid use, uh, we need to be able to get them safe uh, drugs while they are in a process of weaning themselves off. I, I wanted to shift a, a little bit to future of work um, and, and, and where that's going, whether we, you know, because <laughs> there's a lot of anxiety about what it's going to look like. You know, is it going you know, to, you know, I don't personally don't think it's going to go back to full time five days a week in offices, but if it's two days, three days, how we manage the new go, new going forward, how we build relationships, uh, a whole, all the kinds of things. There's obviously, um, as in, in looking at the employer side, an, an immense potential challenge and an immense cost. Um, if we don't solve some of these issues, an ongoing cost, um, time off, treatment, et cetera, et cetera, a range of things. And then on the employee side, um, you know, <laughs> feeling good about what you do and those kind of things. Do you, do you have any advice on that or thoughts on sort of where that world looks like it's going? Yeah, well, you know, I think during the pandemic, employers also started to realize how important mental health is for their employees. You know, we saw parents really struggling trying to work and take care of kids in some cases when schools were shut down. Um, it became very tough. And we saw employers, many of them really step up. So our phone was ringing from employers saying, is there something that we can do to support the mental health of our employees? So we saw some really powerful actions taken. People um, increased the benefit for psychological supports. So that was great. Some people were offering up to $5,000 for uh, psychology. Um, um, which we hadn't seen before. So that I think there was a real recognition around that. Um, 
And what we always recommend is to take a look at the, the standard for psychological health and safety. So uh, Canada has been a world leader in setting what are the requirements to create a psychologically safe workplace. Um, and we offer some training to help workplaces actually live up to that standard. It's a voluntary standard at this point, but the Canadian model is now being modeled internationally um, and it, it will uh, take on a new life. Um, and it's based on research around uh, what makes the psychologically safe place. So it includes things like um, having a clear job description, having a workplace free of abuse, um, uh, having supports for mental health, um, inclusion, so feeling like you can bring your whole self to work. Um, and there are ways that you can measure that within your workplace as well to find out how you're doing. So I think as we think about the future of work, more employers are going to have to be taking this very, very seriously. And I think for some people, you know, you're saying like the hybrid work model is probably what we're going to look at. For many employees, not being in the office five days a week was was helpful for their mental health, um, while others actually wanted more um more social interaction that the workplace brings. So I think it's going to be tricky to find that balance that that um, provides the best benefit for everybody to ensure that we're creating that that psychologically safe uh, place that's also productive. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And some of the work we've done, um, flexibility comes out as the, the key thing people want, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to be shoehorned into the employer's view of how this needs to work, whether it's days of the week or a number of days, et cetera. I want the flexibility. And I and I think if there's a <laughs> a bright spot for employees out of this, the the uh, the balance seems to have tipped in their favor. Um post pandemic, right? In in part because I think some people are are taking stock of their mental health and saying that wasn't a good job or that wasn't the right job for me. And they're they're being more selective and choosing. And in part because I think We've recognized as employers, to your point, how important it is and, and and that we want people to be happy at work. Not that we didn't want them before, but we just didn't think about it the same way. So I, I think the, the balance is tipped to, in favor of employees and, and hopefully it gets better and better. Uh, Margaret, I'm glad you uh, you mentioned the the national standard um, because uh, we've done some research for uh, the actually the Great West Life Center for Mental Health in the Workplace over the years, tracking that you know people's perceptions on many of those those mm -hmm. metrics in in the standard, and it actually came came um, brought brought a question to mind for you: Is does mental health require a national strategy, or is it you know more local? Because it's it's you know, it's so personal, it's sort of different strokes for different folks, but if we're not organized somewhere, you know, we, we kind of don't get anywhere. So what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, well, the Mental Health Commission of Canada was created in 2012 to actually create a national strategy, and it has done just that and has set a high standard for, for what we should see happen across the country. So one of the inspiring parts about that strategy, it was started by Senator Michael Kirby, who said we need something nationally for mental health. Um, and he wanted to have, you know, the same treat, you know, could, could you get the same treatment for your mental illness in St. John's as you could get in, you know, downtown Toronto as you could get in the Yukon? And we still don't have that, but the Mental Health Commission did create a big vision for what that could look like. Um, but part of the problem is the Canada Health Act. So the Canada Health Act funds doctors and hospitals. Um, so from a mental health perspective, it's funding your um, 
your psychiatrist and your trip to an emergency room if you feel suicidal. But a lot of mental health care is not necessarily delivered that way or best delivered that way. Um, it's delivered through community, it's through therapists, it's through uh, group programming, it's through peer support, it's through alcohol recovery programs. So that's more likely to be delivered in the community. And that is what doesn't get funded through the Canada Health Act, which is the largest source of health funding. Is there a mental health equivalent to defund the police? You know what I mean? Like, like can, can we can we better allocate healthcare funds from the the physical system into the into the mental health system, and it ends up being a win for everybody? Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. And I think that's what the liberals are trying to get at with this mental health transfer. So the liberals um, in 2017, I believe it was, injected um, a couple of billion dollars through the Canada Health Act to go to mental health. But they have no idea where that money went. So the provinces, of course, don't want the government telling them what to spend that money on. So it might have just offset existing funds that were being spent on mental health or who knows, and they won't tell. So the idea of the mental health transfer is to really put some golden handcuffs on the provinces. And they've uh, the provinces have already started to push back to say, no, you can't tell us what to do with that money. Just increase the health transfer. So I, I think they're getting ready for a bit of a fight as they look at what what the, that money should be spent on. The, the age-old healthcare debate, who gets to decide where the money goes, how much goes to prevention, how much goes to acute care, and all these different mm-hmm. slices becomes bogs us down over and over again, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. And and are you optimistic, you know, in the, in the months coming ahead, Margaret? I mean, you know, with Omicron and and you know, I was I was just speaking anecdotally with a with a, a friend and. Uh, you know, he said he sent me a text. He said, "I'm I'm concerned about Omicron." I said, "Okay, oh, what what are you concerned about?" And he said, "I'm concerned that it signals to me that the end is not near." So it wasn't a, it wasn't a physical health concern. It was a mental health concern. Are 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 you expecting that through the winter months, you know, things become more severe again? Oh man, that's such a sad question. I know it's. Uh, or is there anything that you're doing differently, like to encourage ramping up of supports if if this happens? Or yeah, I know. I just you know I think back to the period last January, like January to March of last year. I found personally and professionally so hard because the winter was so long and it was so dark, and so the thought of going through something like that again. We just got back into the office for a couple of days a week, and now we're thinking, oh, maybe we should go back to um, working from home. I think we all started this um, off thinking this was a sprint of some kind, and now it's a marathon. But I kept thinking, well, it'll, it's a marathon that lasts a year. Well, it's a marathon that lasts two years. Oh, is it a marathon that lasts three years? Is that really what we're heading into? So, um, uh my mother has this expression about, are we going to be the dinosaurs who uh, die out because of COVID or are we going to be the adaptable cockroaches? <laughs> I like your mom. We're having a conversation. She said, we need to be like the cockroach, <laughs> which is we just keep adapting. We keep adapting. We keep pivoting. Um, so I don't know. In a weird way, that gives me some hope that we'll be the the, the very resilient cockroach. I think there are signs in our in our data that we're being resilient, that, that you know, there are a couple of things that you can see is when we look at the list of top issues, when COVID first hit, yeah. it dominated and everything paled by comparison. Everything else dropped. 
But it's still number one, but other issues have come to the fore. And in other countries around the world, um, poverty and um, the economy started to get up, move above coronavirus, which, so it's not disappearing, it's becoming one of many issues, which causes more stress, but at the same time means we're adapting and moving forward. And when we look at people's sort of faith in society versus faith in themselves, one thing that's held very steady around the world is uh, faith in our own personal futures. So even when we think that society is going to the proverbial in a pan basket, um, we actually think we can punch above what's happening around us. And and whether that's in LATAM or in Asia or in, or in North America or Europe, um, which is, I think, a sort of that resiliency of individuals, right? So while it's not... Um, it, it's not it's not easy. I, I do think that our desire is to do it. And, and so I, hopefully you're hopefully we're cockroaches like your mother suggested. Mike, that makes me feel better. Thank you. <laughs> Ever the optimist, Mike. No, I'm not actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, for today you could take yeah, that most, most people tell you I'm usually the pessimist. Uh, but um, but but I, I, I do think that we're we're, we're figuring out a path. Uh, um, but I think you're right. It's not. A one year, it's not a one year marathon or a two year marathon. It's a many year marathon. So mm-hmm. it's hard to run the race when they keep adding, you know, kilometers to the end of it, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. You just think, I think I see it. I think I see the end, but then no. <laughs> well, well, Margaret, unless Mike, unless you have any other questions, uh, no, I, just I, want I to thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, um, you know, we did this, uh, we set this podcast up so we could talk to accomplished smart people and uh, thank you very much because uh, every time we uh, we have another guest on like you uh, i say to sean okay we gotta do another one just for our own sake so thank you very much margaret well it was really great to chat with you thanks so much for your thoughtful questions and uh i hope it does get better maybe we'll chat again a year from now we, we would love we'll that we in. would love to love with to lots of a year good from news now. to share exactly yeah. exactly excellent okay <laughs> thank you margaret happy thank holidays, you margaret thank you sean Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of public opinion and informed insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.